we have two chapters from building the new economy data as capital chapter nine stable network dynamics in a tokenized financial system and chapter 10 toward an ecosystem of trusted data and ai the stable networks chapter i thought was interesting they really focused on the evolution of the ethereum network and trying to draw parallels between traditional finance or just traditional companies and winner-take-all situations. How do you keep honest competition and fair competition preventing a winner-take-all situation? And I thought at the end, there were some pretty philosophical takeaways that had broader implications in how do you control for anti-monopoly type of behavior. And the, the quote is, that to address centralization with progressive taxes, antitrust laws, and whatnot is a naive approach that really only addresses the symptoms of problems versus the root cause, which is fundamental imbalance in the broader ecosystem. And they argue that underlying structure of a financial network needs to be balanced by, instead of punishing the most successful or the most competitive firms, you need to focus on fostering competition that's more balanced by improving the relative fitness of underperforming agents. And that control in the system by taming the fittest agents is not effective. In order to prevent a winner-take-all situation, you've got to consider the entire fitness landscape. Jake, what did you think? Yeah, I it was... Uh, I, pretty eye-opening, the implication there, because as you mentioned, as the authors mentioned, uh, usually when we talk about monopolies, oligopolies, um, and like what we can do about it, uh, like what the government can do about it, taxation, antitrust laws are pretty much the main two, only two things we ever hear discussed. And then when you talk about, oh, well, we got to help the underperforming agents, um, I feel like there's a pretty big distinction that the authors are clear to make that probably is good to highlight right right here, which is there's a difference between a winner-take-all system where you have a system that is largely dependent and controlled by just a few agents, which is that monopoly, oligopoly uh, system that creates a very inefficient system where everything is just slanted towards the existing winners and it's just, it's, it's not good for the whole. It's good for a couple people, but that's very different from the fit get richer, which is, um, which is a, a healthy competition. And, and what the authors say is that there's a very big difference between these two regimes. Uh, the fit get richer uh, type of uh, ecosystem is one where, yes, yeah, sometimes, traders get on a hot streak and they figure out a market efficiency and they exploit it and they become the fittest and they win a lot. Um, but eventually through that competition, uh, a new fit, a more fit agent arrives and is able to exploit the system even better. And, and it's this give and take of, that often, I think, um, inspires the survival of the fittest, the Darwinism uh, metaphors. And that's, that's good. That that's healthy. That's competition. Uh, not everyone is going to perform, uh, well, there's going to be winners and losers. And so I think the key takeaway here isn't that 
anyone who's a winner, you know, you should always help the losers to catch up to the winners. It's that when you identify a system that is not a fit, get richer, healthy competition system, but rather that winner take all unhealthy monopoly oligopoly system in that situation where it's very clear something needs to be done to restructure. Yeah. Then it's, it's very, it's, it's a, it's a way of addressing it by helping those at the bottom rather than attacking those at the top. Um, kind of gets our entire conception of how to address monopolies um, in reverse. So um, yeah, completely changed my thinking on, on how you address antitrust. Yeah. I think to back it up a little bit further, it is really focused on the idea of systemic instability and how do you avoid that? So they talk about Ethereum and I think this immediately in my mind goes to how do you have the miners pre preventing the miners from controlling too much of the protocol or the validating servers. So this is a real problem. And, and I believe proof of stake communities right now, because the governance is controlled by whoever is receiving most of the delegated stake from the communities. And there's got to be some, aspect to this architecture to ensure that it's not just dominated by quote unquote the rich getting richer right because mm -hmm. if you're if you're running a validator and you're earning a commission on all of the the stake that the community has delegated to you and this is all done through the form of tokens right i i delegate five tokens to you as a validator you're the validator i'm a community member because i trust you to handle my capital and then I'm earning a return through the inflationary mechanism of the of the of the blockchain I'm validating with you. You're earning more of the token, the underlying token, the more you have delegated to you. So the rich get richer, the rich get more powerful. So this idea of systemic instability needs to be addressed by the dynamics of the fitness. The fitnesses themselves, so the characteristics of what you would have a, as a fit agent, right? The, the mm -hmm. dynamics of fitness needs to be able to change and evolve quickly enough so that any of these seemingly lucky, we call agents who are showing anomalous outperformance or out earning in the case of uh, out mining or something. Mean so that the anomalous performance vanishes as quickly as it arose. And I don't know how, I'm not technically savvy enough to know how the existing protocols are achieving that, if they are even successfully doing that. But I have a couple of examples. I mean, that, that I think is, is, in my mind, delegated, delineated between two categories. One, a native function of the protocol technology itself. And then two, a function of the governance. So, and that's important when there's different growth stages of any given system or protocol, which I think is what they're getting at here in this chapter. As far as the governance goes, uh, there's an idea that, uh, you know, after Jack Dorsey had um, his little Twitter thing, 
couple weeks ago. Uh, you sent me a link to the Facebook or not the, the Twitter hangout or Twitter group. And there were a bunch of developers from some protocols and programs talking. And one guy threw out um, quadratic voting. And while it maybe doesn't solve some of the staking issues you talked about, it was an interesting idea for kind of how to level the playing field. So if the issue is that you have very large holders of governance tokens, basically dictating which proposal, just writing all the proposals, uh, influencing the what gets approved, what doesn't, basically exerting a huge amount of control. Quadratic voting uh, scales back the number of votes. So instead of a one share, one vote, um, you might start with one share, one vote, but maybe if you have 10 shares, you only get nine votes. If you have 100 shares, you only get 85 votes. So it, it, it doesn't grow proportionally and it doesn't necessarily penalize you. You can organize something like this however you want. Ultimately, any governance structure can be organized in any way, but um, it doesn't necessarily have to scale back your rewards, your monetary rewards. But as far as governance and voting, um, yeah, it might not be the purely one one share, one vote. But what I think it does is it, it, it allows the individuals to be a little more equal in the representation rather than just the biggest wallet. Um, th- there are issues here with crypto and DAOs and governance and but um well it's yeah, just I, I would add I, I would I want to add a little bit of color to what I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. So in the in let's just talk about helium as an example here where I think they've done this successfully. They've managed the growth of the network successfully for the, the health of the overall network and it's it's relatively stable. So in the early days, the helium hotspot, the way it works is your little antenna on the thing that you plug into your into your outlet, individuals like you or I could only really have one at our house. In the early days, it's all the, the amount that you earn. Your little antenna provides a radius of signal for smart IoT devices that can use it, that, that can then kind of use your your bandwidth and you're providing this network signal, right? So in the early days, you if your neighbor had a hotspot, your two hotspots would ping each other because they're really close to each other and you would earn some token for that ping, some amount of tokens. So if you lived in the middle of a big city and there were a ton of other hotspot owners, you were paying hundreds more hotspots in any given day, far, far out earning a tokens number that somebody in the rural countryside might be earning where there's no hotspots. They're earning a little bit at that time just for being online, but really to grow the network and to grow the amount of signal being provided for this IOT broadband, you needed to reward people for being able to ping each other so that you could have this this massive spread in like the big cities, the, the densely populated areas. And so over time, what would happen is everybody who is doing all this work and oversaturated, you know, you don't need 20 hotspots within a given block. You really only mm-hmm. need like four or five. So they needed to tilt the earnings to incentivize growth in areas that had very few hotspots. So there was a penalty effect applied based on how many hotspots were within your little area. And now if you're in this densely populated city, you earn a fraction 
of someone who might only have half as many hotspots that are, it's pinging against. So that's just an example of how for the underlying health of the network, what that use case is all about, which is providing this secondary signal with these little antenna, it's, it's been successful because the, the deployments have shifted to covering new land parcels that weren't incentivized previously to, to provide coverage. And so the, the actual square mileage of this signal that's out there, this broadband, you could call it, has grown and the reward to participate has shifted to incentivize the smaller performers, maybe who, who maybe only have a couple of hotspots. I mean, you're not, you're not penalized for having a bunch of hotspots as long as they're in areas of less saturation. So that's, that's what I was trying to say earlier that I kind of stumbled on, but I mean, that that's one example. Um, well, I think that is think, a good example of um, because whenever you enact a rule that would change the competitive dynamics, I think regardless of whether it's a top-down or bottom-up uh, approach, you, the, the existing winners are going to claim that you're persecuting them, that you're just trying to kill um, their advantage. That uh, so so I, when trying to change the competitive dynamics rather than those traditional just. Uh, antitrust measures. Uh, I think that's a great example because if you make a rule that you can say, look, this applies to everyone. Yes, it's going to disproportionately affect you because you're exploiting an inefficiency here. But um, I think if you can point to a rule like that and and just say, this is a, this is, affects everyone. And I think you can maintain your credibility. And I think that's what, yeah, it's a good example of the rewriting the competitiveness. Well, yeah, and it, it was successful because, I mean, objectively, you, you measure the health and the growth of the actual network and the, yeah. the coverage radius. And, I mean, there were days when some of these hotspots would earn an obscene amount, and then mm -hmm. very quickly it would it would revert. So it was that idea of banishing as soon as the anomaly appeared. It, it actually was happening. It, it was very healthy. So, you know, I tip my hat to those, those devs. but. Um, I'd also highlight like the shade protocol, the way that they did their airdrop distribution. They incentivized the community to to stake their tokens with validators that were outside of the top 25. So on the the Kepler wallet, you have a list of validators, and it's organized by who has the most stake, who who's got the most capital on their their server. The idea being more stake means more trust. Of course, that it, it probably is going to be true 90%, 95% of the time, but the couple of the times it's not, it could be really bad. So they did a great thing and said, hey, if you stake your tokens, your secret tokens outside of the top 25, you get a bonus airdrop. And this was such a big event that it significantly improved the decentralized composure of, of the secret network. So there's all these different things that can happen um, and, and different mechanisms that you can pull in the crypto world. And so I don't mm -hmm. know really how you do this with like the traditional world, but there's, there's gotta be ways. So in any event, yeah, much, good chapter. Yeah. How much would it suck to be the 25th node? Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> the last there, man there out. were some, <laughs> 
it, it improved the posturing quite well, but that that is also almost it is almost a penalty for the top the top people because I mean here they had earned all the community trust. I, I mean I don't know for a fact, but I know like Binance was one of the top validators I think, and that mm-hmm. had been a concern for people for a while because they're a very centralized entity, and I think they came down a couple of spots which. I mean, this is all. This could be controversial, depending on where you how you view it. So, I think the vast majority of the community examined it and thought that it was good because some of the smaller validators got got a little uplift. But again, it's always going to be controversial, no matter what you do. It you you're not <laughs> only with the benefit mm-hmm. of hindsight will you be able to say this was objectively good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've talked about this on the daily show quite a bit. And it's, um, these kind of moves, as long as they're open, honest, transparent, I think you, you give yourself the best shot because yeah, no, not everyone's going to be happy with something like that. Yeah. So what did you think about, I mean, I think that, that pretty much summarizes the, yeah. That chapter. Oh, yeah. what did you think of the, of the following with the trusted AI? I mean, this is also kind of a rehash of things we've already talked about but yeah. a little bit more detail. Yeah, yeah. So this is, uh, I call it like a deeper dive from chapter two. In chapter two introduced the concept of a data co-op. And a quick review, a data co-op, if you imagine having complete and total control and agency over your own data, it actually is a bit of a intimidating task to take on because of how much data you produce, of trying to figure out uh how to sell or allow access to remove access to your data, all of that. It's, it's a lot to handle. So the idea of a data co-op is that um, instead of having to handle every single issue and uh, task that comes with trying to manage your own data, you could delegate a very trusted uh, cooperative and the co-op would represent you and everyone else who chose to be a part of it. The parallel was credit unions or labor unions, people that come together and agree to work together towards a common cause that is in their own self-interest. And so this was really just a deeper dive talking about how that would look. Uh, there, They talk a little bit more about OPAL, the Open Algorithm Project. Uh, they uh, go into a little deeper detail about, um, let me just review my notes. Um, yeah, I thought they, there was a great example of how this could look with a member of a data co-op yeah. and a bank requesting a loan. So the idea being when you go to a bank, they're going to use the third party, the very centralized credit monitoring services, the credit agencies. There's only three or four of them. It's a regulated monopoly and they're, I mean, experience a public company. These companies have proven to be completely incapable of responsibly managing our private data with all these data breaches that they've suffered and the class action lawsuits that have been around those. So, I mean, we absolutely need a better way for, for, for handling this data. And in our little dream world here, it's possible because you would be able to have your personal data store, the, the storage repository of all this data, right? Of all the people in this group, this co-op, and mm-hmm. you could have that data sit there, privatized, 
these companies or this bank could come in with an algorithm and analyze that without knowing who's who, I mean, ideally, without being able to identify names and stuff. Although I think you would need to somehow identify this particular individual. You would, you would identify this individual and how it competes against the average statistics of this group. And then you wouldn't need this centralized entity who's maintaining all this knowledge that can just get hacked. So the outcome is you've got algorithmically driven insights. The data stays privately encrypted in one store. And the scope of that data access can be programmatically limited based on the smart contract, the algorithm, the exchange, that that whole transaction, that whole interaction can be programmatically limited in scope, which is very different from how this stuff's being done today. Yeah. So you can the, see um, real authority here with a decentralized solution, but go mm -hmm. ahead. Well, I I didn't want to rehash a ton of stuff that I talked about because um, because this does pull a lot from stuff we've already talked about. I the more I was thinking about it, I had a couple of concerns. I guess I didn't realize with data co-ops the first time around. Um, one of which is this entire concept kind of relies on still being able to provide the the metadata anonymized a lot of the valuable insights of all of our data to companies who want to access it this isn't as if we say you know to all these companies you don't get our data anymore i i, I think this is supposed to strike a bit of a balance where one doesn't exist now so the intention is not to go from one extreme to the other and the open algorithms are i think the main way to achieve that and the open algorithms can be i think the the elevator pitch is don't bring the data all of our data to the algorithms at these companies instead retain the data and have those algorithms come to the data that way you keep the data in-house you're not sharing it it's not out in their world being used and abused and traded by everyone um and so with these open algorithms a company a querier would say hey um they would go to the data co-op and they would say uh we want some insights from the data that all your members uh, have put in your hands. And they'd say, all right, choose from this menu of vetted and pre-approved algorithms. We will run it on our end, and then we'll return the insights to you, but you will never actually see the granular data because you don't need it. And you'll never get a copy of it because, again, you don't need it. Here's the insights, the metadata that you're looking for. And now the users don't have to worry about a lot of the problems we deal with now. So I guess one of the concerns I have within that whole uh, cycle of transactions is um, you know, who decides what algorithms are appropriate? I, I wonder if uh, you would have like national standards or um, because I, I, mostly I'm thinking like the big problem with some of these algorithms is that they, a lot of this machine learning technology is that it reinforces bias and uh i just i just don't know like how you build a list of approved algorithms i, I guess each co-op could decide that maybe you might have national standards um yeah that yeah, was one well, question i would add i mean 
it, it depends on the complexity of the analysis, of course. So in the example that they discuss here, it's it's five years worth of income and expense history related to some kind of loan. And right, right now, the way the existing transaction is problematic between the credit agencies is because when you we don't have a choice. Those agencies have all of our stuff from our bank account. I mean, you agree to all that when you open the bank account. It's just the way it is. It's a regulated monopoly. And then they go and turn profit off of the data by reselling it and doing a bunch of crazy stuff. Experience a public company, you can go investigate how they make their money and read the transcripts of their earnings calls and analyze their profitability. It's it's kind of crazy because this is our data. Why Why should any entity be making money off of it when they can't even... They can't even do their one job, right? Which is to keep this private. So, the to back it up, the the problem highlighted in the chapter is consumers are not being reciprocated for the exchange of their data with these companies. And we, by the way, don't have a choice to opt out of these credit agency monitoring companies. These three or four monopolies, you know, so. This is a problem. This is not a great solution. This is not a great handling of, well, how do you verify whether or not someone's creditworthy? So yeah. if, if, if you took, you could theoretically open source the mm -hmm. way you look at that. And if it's simple data points like bank transactions, that can all be kept anonymous, but the data co-op can be regulated in such a way to require its signature of verification must meet standards X, Y, and Z for loan approvals A, B, or C. And then all you're doing is allowing this algorithm to e examine the data and what is returned to the bank requesting it is just a signature from the data co-op saying this meets your requirements. Now, there are obviously issues with how do you make sure that is a trustworthy signature and how do you make sure this is a perfectly run interaction, but the concept is there. Yeah, I, I guess you. this was talked about in Chapter 2. Data co-ops along the mold of credit unions would be, they would get their accreditation through, they'd, they'd be sanctioned, they'd be like, yes, you are a legal entity you have you you're trustworthy enough you have a fiduciary fiduciary responsibility but i was just thinking how nice that would be because uh, i bought a car a couple of years ago and i bought a house a couple of years ago and i went through my credit score and, and there's just like four instances of my score getting pulled and then it just dinging my score and just thinking how nice it'd be if you could be like yeah oh you need my credit score here's my data co-op and then they could call up the data co-op and the co-op would be like, yep, that's our member. Here's the pre-approved uh, credit scoring algorithm that everyone uses. We'll run it. Bing, bang, boom. Here's the score for that you're looking for, car loan company. And no one ever has to see my data. Uh, I, I assume the, <laughs> the credit union isn't going to ding my score since I'm a part of, or the, the data co-op isn't going to ding my score since I'm a part of it. Um, it's just such a better way to, to run simple information gathering. Um, I hate credit scores so much. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it just sounds too like it makes too much sense. You know what I mean? Like this, this is insanely disruptable because I'm pulling up, I'm pulling up, um, I'll pull up experience statements and, and, and pull this for the, the pod here in a moment. Yeah. But that's, oh my God. dude, I just, I, I have to just say the more, see now you got my brain just spiraling. How fudging crazy is it? <laughs> there are organizations we know next to nothing about that have a history of massive data breaches who we have to pay and ultimately bear costs to tell us information about ourselves. It's the dumbest shit in the world. Um, sorry, I just, I hate it so much. <laughs> no, it's such it's a bad. weird... So, so it's Equifax. And when I was working on Class Action App... This was a massive data breach that we were going to try to integrate into our our app, and so I sp we spent a fair amount of time looking at this and shining light on it. So I mean, Equifax, they're one of the groups. In the three months ended September thirtieth, twenty twenty one, their their gap net income attributable to Equifax two hundred five million dollars. What do they do? I mean, all of that could be handled. All of that value that's going to that company and their shareholders could be actually coming back to all of the people that is that are generating the data that they're reselling. So that's a huge opportunity. There's that quote, right? You're that. Well, I guess this isn't a take rate, but the take rate is is my opportunity. I think I'm not going to guess it. I, I can't remember who that was, but. Um, that's exactly the point to be made here is there's an entire value chain built on the exploitation of our involuntary data providing as mm -hmm. consumers. It's disruptible and sure it's a regulated monopoly. I mean, that's, that's what makes it an attractive stock to an investor. Cause mm -hmm. if you go and pull up the max chart, the five-year chart you see in I mean, it barely had a blip. It's done tremendously well since that since that um, data breach happened. Of course, so, not the yeah, um, it's it's a, it's a damn shame. So, I mean, well, do well, you think this this actually gets to a really good point? Because I feel like when we talk about data privacy and online privacy and how important it is, I, I think a lot of time most people's instinct is to go to surveillance. And I think one thing I commonly hear from people who really don't feel concern over data privacy is, well, I have nothing to hide. And fine, okay, you're a saint. That's, that's I'll give you that. But I'm sure every single person that says that is also needs very little prompting to start bitching like I just did about how much they hate credit unions and how the entire concept is really dumb. And it's like, that's a cost well, that credit credit monitoring. Yeah. I mean, but the, it's you're, exactly. you're missing out. It's more than just surveillance. It's all of these little costs and inconveniences that you have to bear just throughout the entire system. And so I think that's just an angle that I, I, I wish more people had an appreciation for, but yeah. Yeah, there's this book, this, the book um, Surveillance Capital. I started reading it. I think we should do another series on that book after this oh. one because it's 
talks about that in the very first chapter, which admittedly I'm only one chapter in, but that idea is that you've converted the human experience into free raw materials for all of these huge companies. And it's, it's an idea that they, the regulators don't understand obviously how these companies even operate. So they are incapable of actually regulating them accurately. So really the only way I think that we're going to be able to, to disrupt this mm-hmm. is through some kind of smart contract technology, a DLT distributed ledger technology. So, I mean, you're looking at it, you're staring it right in the face when you look at the filings, hundreds of millions of dollars, annual revenue opportunity. Cause imagine if you had a smart contract that just said, Oh, you know what? We're, <laughs> I mean, you, you could, you could claim, um, a percent of that or 2% of that with a team of 10 to 20 people developing mm-hmm. this and do a better job at providing privacy and protection for people's data than any of these. I mean, Equifax has a $36 billion market cap as of the uh, close of, I guess, yesterday, technically. So that's a lot of value the market's putting on it. And I don't think that market cap or that that share price is accurately reflecting um, you know, the value that we would place on our privacy and such. So this mm-hmm. is a huge opportunity. And this this book and this data co-op, data exchange stuff, it's it's trying to show show how it could look. Yeah, it's like, what if you didn't have to pay other people for access to your own information that you generate? It's, I think the data co-op's a good, it's, yeah. it's a good standard because, uh, yeah, right now I think a good uh, example of people who have control over their own data, the best we have in this country is probably that California privacy law that went up. And you can do a couple things. You can ask companies how they're using your data you can ask them to forget you and be like deleted from you can ask them to like who they've sold your data to but i mean you have to like sit down and find forms and submit them and it's just it's a process that most people probably aren't going to go through and in the end it's really just fyi this is how you're being taken advantage of more than preventing it or taking agency over your data so i guess it's a good start but yeah, this this idea of a data co-op, it would allow people to to have control in a way that doesn't burden them, and because that's a real danger. Um, I think I we talked about that article, uh, the Daybreak Show, a couple weeks ago about the uh, just giving people the keys to managing their data. It it really can be overwhelming. So yeah, I love the data co-op deal. Um, just uh, it's I just would uh, one. I would add one thing, and then I feel like we're we're kind of at the tail end of this. But yeah. the the idea of that California law, great idea. But I've did some research. Like if you're if you're trying to communicate with a company and having that some software company, some say some some website you're using, and you want to delete your account, you want to have them delete your data. They will treat your request differently if they know you live in California versus if they know you don't, because if you, they know you don't live in California, they know they don't have to do anything. There's no law right. requiring, unless just brand reputation. But then if you live in Cali, like, so this, there's, I was reading these Reddit threads. You basically, you can just kind of lie and say, yeah, I'm in Cali. And then <laughs> they, 
they'll be faster about it. Um, but I think if it was like a bank or, or something that actually knows your address and knows, <laughs> can verify whether or not that's true, they, I don't know how they'd handle it. But the point is that needs to be more widespread. The ability to just do that at a click of a button needs to be more widespread. And I know we talked about that a week or two ago on Daybreak, but um, we'll get there. Yeah. But you know, the other thing is, um, even if you are from California, how would you know that they're actually doing what they say, one? And two, if you knew they weren't, what are you going to do? File a request, I guess, with the state government of California? Or um, it, it just it's just another case of being completely on your own at the end of the day. Um, and I think that's just another reason I like this data co-op deal because banding together and pooling your resources and power, it's, it's been proven through history, through labor unions, credit unions. Uh, it's a difference maker. So I think an approach to data management based on collective cooperation among people is really the only way this, this has any teeth and changes the dynamic. Completely agree. Completely agree. Well, hey, this is cool. great. I don't, you know, I think we've kind of pretty good time to wrap up. Thanks for making time today. Yeah. Let's try to get back on next weekend and keep so this cool. going. I think we're like halfway through. Oh, we're more. I think there's 14 chapters. So 11, 12, 13, four more. Awesome. That's crazy. We'll be done soon and then we'll have one to go to go do. So cool, man. Well, hey, happy new year and I'll chat with you soon. You too. Catch you later, bud.